0: Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our midweek service. It's good to be here. Good to be back. Um, it seems like it's been just such a long time um, <clears throat> since i have been here and and uh, teaching going through the word with you um again if if you weren't here on sunday um i, I did speak a little bit about um, the israel trip uh, it was um it was a wonderful time. It was just a uh, uh, such a blessing to be in those places that we read about. Um, you know, the um, from the time we got off of the airplane and uh, went just uh, just north um, and stayed at a hotel. From there, the next day we went to Caesarea and um, we saw exactly where um, Herod um, Herod's palace was and and just uh, the the chariot races and uh, In fact, he had his own private that he carved out of the rock on the Mediterranean. And um, so we, that's where it started off. And we ended up in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, going across the um, Kidron and into, um, uh, onto the north side of the old city and um, to the Garden Tomb in Golgotha in that area. And so and everything in between, from Mount Carmel to the Valley of Megiddo to Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi and uh, Tell Dan and on and on and on. So I would, um, you know, as I said on Sunday, um, I hope that at some point all of you get an opportunity to go. It's well worth the sacrifice. It's well worth uh, investing that because it it is investing in your own spiritual growth. Um, They say that uh, one trip to uh, Israel is like a, a whole year of um, Bible college, you know, of going through. And uh, and you can imagine that to be true when you open up scripture and everywhere where you go, whether it be Mount Carmel or Megiddo or Caesarea Philippi or the Mount of Olives, you open up the word and, uh, and, and you see exactly what the word says about those specific areas. Um, to see Abraham's gate to the north, um, it being the the very gate that Abraham came through at one point, Um, the place where the northern tribe, as we went through it, the northern tribe, one of the two areas, Dan and Bethel were the two areas, the two locations where they set up the false worship of God Um, to see one of those um, truly, again, just uh, amazing. And I would um, hope that you make it a point to go at at some point. Uh, at some time to um, Israel. Um, <clears throat> maybe on Sunday I can put together some uh, a slide for us and, and I can go through some of the pictures uh, of Israel and what we experienced out there. But, um, but it's good to be back. And as I said on Sunday, um, I'm thankful uh, to Jake and Chris, Stephen and uh, Modesto for stepping up and teaching um, as you can tell, my voice isn't completely back and I have some cough drops up here just in case I go into a coughing fit, but, um, but all in all, it's just it's good to be here and for those men to step up and, um, and, and fill the pulpit and teach, I know that you were blessed and they poured into you um, because they are well prepared and uh, able and willing to, to serve you as they minister to God In that way. Um, Tonight, we're going to be in Ezra. We're going into Ezra chapter 2. As you turn there, I do want to let you know that the Seder presentation is happening next Wednesday, so we will not have a midweek study next Wednesday. Um, uh, So if you'd like to sign up, there is a cost of $10 per person. Um, There will be no children's ministry um, uh, or youth group on that evening. Again, a week from today for the Seder presentation. Uh, Kids, Uh, Ages ten and younger are free, and uh, so it it is a presentation. So it's not dinner, but we will have dessert and uh, some beverages afterwards to enjoy some fellowship. And so, if you'd like to sign up, make sure that you sign up this coming Sunday because, of course, it is the last day to sign up for for that. That way, we can prepare adequately and make sure that everyone's taken care of. So, hopefully, you're there. You're as uh, um, you're there next Wednesday, but also. Uh, You've turned in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2 is what we're going over this evening. So as we went over a few weeks ago now, we learned that um, as we go into um, the book of Ezra, uh, this is um, going to be covering not only the first wave, but the second wave of the Israelites coming back or returning to Judah and Jerusalem with and being led by Zerubbabel. Um, Ezra is not introduced until the seventh chapter, as I went over at that time. Um, there were, like I said, in this book, there's two waves of the return of the Israelites, the repatriation of um, the nation of Israel. Um, and then, of course, the third is Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Uh, but these, these first two waves, um, returning from their Babylonian exile, the first group again was led by Zerubbabel, the second was, was led by Ezra, and that was 80 years later. You remember 58 years uh, took place in between chapters 6 and 7, 80 years from the time of chapter 1 of Ezra to chapter 7, so quite a few years um, passed uh, between those chapters And so what we'll see is the repatriation of the people of God, just as he had told them. And this is something that we need to keep in mind. And that is the the faithfulness of God. His word is true, and we can can count on him. We know that he is trustworthy, that what he says will come to pass. And so that's always something that we need to pay attention to, and we need to cling to, always, because at some point, Not only do we need to know it as far as knowledge is concerned, but also apply it in various times in our lives as we have personal need of those promises, those things that God has told us. We know them to be true, and we need to press into them and cling to them and know that He is faithful. And so we need to pay attention to that as we know tonight, as we found out a few weeks ago, or perhaps you were reminded about how it was that It was prophesied that these things were to be. Um, And so we have the, the first wave of the Israelites coming back into the promised land. Now, there were the people, there were the priests, there were the Levites, the temple servants, the singers, all of them who returned with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And when the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, there was a mixed response and uh, some shouted with joy, and others wept with sorrow. With time, we'll find out exactly why it was, that some were rejoicing, and others wept. But remember one thing, again, God's word is sure. It never disappoints. It always comes to pass. I remind you that Cyrus was prophesied about Isaiah, about by Isaiah, by name, 150 years before he was even born. Isaiah 44 verses 28 through Isaiah 45 verse 5. I want to remind you also that Jeremiah prophesied of Babylon's punishment at the end of Israel, Israel's exile at least 70 years before. And that is found in Jeremiah 25 verses 8 through 13 and Jeremiah 29 verses 10 through 14. In other words, and this is what we get from this. When Israel went into exile, because it was prophesied, at the 70 year mark, in fact, at the 69 year mark, the 70 year mark, there should have been an an anticipation. There should have been just a a strong sense of. just knowing that God was about to bring them back into the promised land. In fact, when they heard about Cyrus by name, should have gotten even more excited because according to God's word, their return to their land was imminent. It was about to happen. I say this because also with us today, regarding God's word In any matter, especially when we see the things that are happening today, we ought to, yes, it it is it is a a dark world in which we're living in, but at the same time, we can be excited because the return of Christ, the rapture of the church is going to happen at any moment. The question for us is: are we ready? look up. Remember, your redemption, our redemption draws near. You see, God is faithful, and we can completely count on his word. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Perhaps you are going through something right now, Again, I I want you to think about God's faithfulness. That is exactly what we get as we read scripture, as we study, as we see God's character through and through. We see his mercy. We see his long-suffering. We see his grace. And we see his amazing love toward all people, but especially toward his, his own. You see, he... Today, we know that that he sent his only begotten son to die on behalf of the whole world. And, and, And we know that that's true, but only those who benefit from it for all eternity are those who believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved Remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's word is true. Not once, not twice, but every time. So no matter what you're going through, you can rest assured knowing that he will bring to pass those things which he has spoken And tonight is just another example of that. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are true to your word. Lord, that you are sovereign. And just that your spoken word, things happen. In fact, you spoke the world into existence. Out of nothing, you made everything. So, Lord, we can, as we see even this evening, by evidence of the return of the Israelites back into the promised land, confirm this to be true once again. Lord, I pray that our faith would increase, for faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of truth, by the word of God. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do that, that you would stir our hearts, that you would deepen our faith, Lord, that we would rejoice in the things that you have spoken, Lord, knowing that wisdom comes from you. And Lord, we know that our hope comes from belonging to Jesus Christ. And so, Father, speak to us this evening, give us understanding, teach us all things that pertain to you. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Ezra chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now these were the people of the province who came out of the, of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonium. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Zariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar Begvi, Rem, and Bena. This is the, only the beginning of the list of the people consisting of families, and of course, as we see here, individuals or the head of the families returning to Judah and Jerusalem again, just as God had spoken. Now, it wasn't because Rezup, Re- Zerubbabel... Or anyone else was demanding their release. It wasn't because. Zerubbabel was sent. To the king to. uh, Insist on their returning to their land. But it was because of God's word. And by his power alone. Now some people will comment. Saying that it was the culture and common practice. Of the Persians to return people to their native land. After having been taken into captivity, but 70, 80, 90 years earlier, we need to know this and we need to acknowledge this, is that they were not taken captive by Cyrus, king of Persia. They were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, But in saying that, we need to also acknowledge the fact that God knew, because he is omniscient. And it was his will, but no one else knew, unless, unless they believed God at his word. But because remember that he had prophesied of these things. Perspective is everything again, just thinking about the application of what we're learning this evening and what we're being reminded of, we need to have a proper perspective of God in our own lives. You see, the proper perspective reality, knowing this, is that no matter what we are going through and no matter what they were going through, there is a bigger picture and God is always in control. He is sovereign. And again, we can rest in that. We know that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways and his thoughts. Again, we need to surrender those things to the Lord. We can demand the answers to life in general and the consequences or perhaps the situations that we find ourselves in. And yet if we trust God, not anxious about anything, but we pray. With thanksgiving, why would we do that? Because we trust in him. We can have a peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to keep in mind the bigger picture. All things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Remember that. As we continue, though, I know that as we listed, as we read these names, uh, Nehemiah and Mordecai came up. Uh, <clears throat> the Nehemiah and Mordecai, though, I just want to make a, a quick note. The Nehemiah and Mordecai that we see in this list are not those of whom the next book is written about, nor uh, is, is Mordecai, the one listed here, Esther's uncle. These were other men with the same name. That's all, all it was. And so I just wanted to make that point real quick before he got stuck on that and perhaps at some point made a note and went off and started looking into it. Um, So it's not the same. And so uh, who would have ever thought, you know, as we continue, who would have ever thought, you know, as they were being taken into captivity that they would return back to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, and yet again they did. I say that because sometimes we think that the the things that we find ourselves in, the situations that we find ourselves in are going to last forever, don't they? Like, how are we ever going to get out of this situation? I have no doubt that the Israelites, when they were taken into captivity, taken to Babylon, that they were thinking the same thing. And yet, God said that he would deliver them and bring them back. And here they were returning Being led by Zerubbabel. Being returned. uh, The repatriation of Israel was taking place. This Zerubbabel was appointed governor over the province of Judah. And something else that is important to note. Is that he was the descendant of the last reigning king of Judah. Uh, He was a man who was of the lineage of the kings of Judah. Also something to Uh, Something important to note is that in Ezra 1.8, there's a reference to, we know uh, uh, as far as uh, Zerubbabel is concerned, but there's also uh, a reference to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And again, Ezra 1.8. There is a reference to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And then in Ezra 5.16, it says that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of Judah, that is in Jerusalem, and then we follow that out to Ezra 3.8, where he gives credit to Zerubbabel for the work of laying the foundation. So I want to say that because, again, I don't want to get tied up in some of these things uh, because we can make the conclusion from that. We are, we are pretty certain that both Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are the same person. And so just a a note of some of these things so we can do some house cleaning and and continue on with the study of Ezra. We have the list of the people returning to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, and then we continue. The number of the men of the people of Israel, verse verse, um, 3, the sons of Parash, uh, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of... Um, Arah seven hundred and seventy-five, the sons of Peath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab two thousand eight hundred twelve, etc. <laughs> so as we go on, I'm not going li- to I'm not going to read the uh, the list of names and the numbers, but <clears throat> but we go on through verse thirty-five. Now, what we have in this list is only the names of the heads of the families. And then the numbers that um, make up that family. And so the number of people would be greatly increased when we consider the number of women and children that were represented and also returned to Jerusalem and Judah. In total, we have in the first wave what is believed to be about 50,000 Israelites. Now, some other things to note as you go through that, perhaps in your own time, you go through and read those names what you perhaps may note is that you have some Persian and Babylonian names that they were given while they were in captivity. And yet they are Jewish. They are, they are Israelites. Uh, and each one of those names has a meaning, some more significant than others. It was interesting as, uh, as you look into the meanings of their names. There was one name that meant a flea. Imagine that. Crush means a flea. Can you imagine being named that? Oh, this is my friend, Flea. <laughs> right? And then we have another one that is named Wild Ox. Who knows why he was named Wild Ox, but he was named Wild Ox. Or at least that's what his name meant. Perhaps he was, he was big and strong, right? But we do have another name that actually means strong man. And yet we get into some of the other names which mean uh, Yahweh is judged, pure, etc. You know, I know that today uh, the names that we uh, that we give to our our children, um, some have meaning, and others it's just they're cute names, right? And that's how we name them, or we name them because of uh, grandpa or dad or mom, or we do things like that. But it was somewhat different in that day, and and. Yet we have mixed in with Israelite names or, or Hebrew names. We have Babylonian names and Persian names as well, but they all had a meaning. Now, you and I have been given a new name. We're new creatures in Christ. We have been purchased by the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. We know that we have, been, we have gone from being condemned to being forgiven and therefore delivered from hell and made children of God by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ, we are Christians, we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are his disciples, we are his children. And so from here, as we continue, the list um, goes on, we go into priests, Levites, and and we'll see here also some temple, uh, the temple servants. Let's continue, verse 36. The priests, the sons of Judea of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Eimer, 1,052. The sons of Peshur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. And then we have the Levites. The sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel. The sons of Hadaviah, 74, the singers. The sons of Asaph. 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalem, the sons of Ader, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hathaita, and the sons of Eshobiah, in all 139. Then in verse 43, we have the temple servants listed, the sons of Ziah, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shimlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gear, the sons of Reah, the sons of Rezin, and Nakoda, and Gazam, and Uzzah, Besaya, Besai, Asna, Meonim, the sons of Nephissim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harar, the sons of Bezluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas and Sisra and Tema, Neziah and the sons of Hatifa. Then we also in verse 55 have the sons of Solomon's servants listed, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasaphereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jela, the sons of Darkan, Gedel, Shephatiah, Hatiel, and Pokhrath, Hasabam, and the sons of Ammi. In all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. So we have there, as we read through, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and we see at the very end the sons of Solomon's servants. Now, perhaps you didn't do the math in your head. And, uh, and, and you didn't notice. But there's some important things to note as we went through. Now, what we have listed here are only four of the 24 divisions of the priesthood. That were named here of having returned to Jerusalem. In other words... Four out of 24 means most priests stayed behind in Babylon. Well, even fewer Levites returned. Meaning that a considerable number of Levites, of course, stayed behind as well in Babylon. You can make your own conclusion as to why it was that they stayed behind. But many commentators say the same thing. And you can think about it yourself. But it seems to me that they were very comfortable where they were. You know, as we consider our own tendencies, right? I believe that perhaps they didn't want to engage in change, perhaps they didn't want to enter into an inevitable struggle, a work, a fight to rebuild, even if it meant to restore right worship in God's place of worship in Jerusalem. Of course, this work would glorify God and benefit all, but we know that they were not willing. It's not that they couldn't, but it's that they wouldn't. They weren't willing to do so. You see, they were free to go back. I remind you, as we read in Ezra chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says this This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, had declared. He said, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings, for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. It was declared, "You're free to go back. Go rebuild the house of the Lord." In fact. The king told the people around them, Give them what they need, silver, gold, whatever it was that they need, send them back with it. But they did not all return. Again, I just remind you of our own tendencies. Don't we like comfort? We're creatures of comfort, right? Anyone like change? No one likes change, right? Do we like conflict? Nobody likes conflict. Especially when we know that the challenges perhaps may look and seem insurmountable. It's such a great work. It's such a great task. Meaning overwhelming. That perhaps they weren't willing to. Many times we're not willing to put forth the effort, the work necessary, the work that we're called to. Perhaps we're guilty of worshiping God however we want and not really purposefully engaging in the difficult yet wonderful work of worshiping God and ministering to him just as he has prescribed for us to do so. To make disciples, not to be entertained. To facilitate the worship of our Savior And serving within the church. Not coming and and being served, but to rather serve others as we have grown to to the point of being able to do that. Being equipped, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, right? We have that tendency, if we're we're honest, we have that tendency to rather prefer comfort and withdraw our hands from engaging from the difficult things that we are called to do and yet is is the best thing that we can do. Do we count the cost? Yes. But are we willing to pay it? Not always. Not if it changes or infringes on the comforts of your life. Sometimes even if we know that it would glorify the Lord. You know, 1 Corinthians 15:58 and I want to encourage you with this says therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season if we do not give up, we will reap if we do not give up. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, and I I know I refer to that often, but there's a reason for that. It's because, again, we have a tendency. You know, I would like to think that refuge is the exception, right? And then we don't at some point, even if we are consistent, even if we are engaged in in serving, in giving ourselves to the Lord, sometimes we can feel a bit overwhelmed or perhaps tired. Perhaps we... Don't have the right perspective. We forget about why it is that we're serving. And then we start to think, "Eh, you know what? I'm going to take a break. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to go away for a little bit. Listen, press in. The day is short, the day is far spent. Right? The time is coming to when we're going we're gonna to rest for eternity. We're going to be in glory. Until then, I, I hope that all of us get to a point to where we are willing to just be exhausted and, and know that we are completely fulfilled and content in just doing the will of the Lord. And that is facil- facilitating or personally engaging in the discipleship of others. Of stirring up others to loving good works, of honoring the Lord. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if what we do not give up, right? I I remember on my on my whiteboard in the garage, I just put this. You know, because we have a tendency again to give up on Good th- even good things. I put, what would happen if this year I just don't give up? Whatever it may be. What would my life look like next year? I'm just not going to give up. I may stumble a bit. I may not be feeling it, right? But what if I just don't give up? I just keep going. Let's press in, let's keep going. Let's persevere. Well, not everyone, as I had pointed out, not everyone returned. Not everyone came back to Jerusalem and Judah. You know, when Arana offered King David the threshing floor and the oxen for free in order to build an altar and worship the Lord, he refused. King David refused. And said, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Second Samuel 24, 24. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 1 said this. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I I draw, brothers and sisters, special attention to this because, again, it is all too common today for people to prefer comfort over sacrifice. Prefer it over a whole commitment and devotion to God, especially if that demands denying ourselves of those things that bring us personal pleasure or rest or comfort. I'm speaking about even the smallest of denials or inconveniences. I'm not referring to being a martyr for the Lord, of going overseas to some remote island and giving your life to the Lord in that way. I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just the smallest of denials, personal denials or inconveniences. Unfortunately, I've heard people just withdraw and not being willing to press in because they're not tired or I have you know this or that going on, and we're not willing to make shifts in our schedule in order to serve the Lord. it's just, it just sometimes I, I think, do we even know what it is to sacrifice to the Lord to give to him. You know I can look back on <clears throat> when I first started serving the Lord that when I I first tasted and and I saw how good the Lord was, and then I was given the opportunity to just serve him. And I've told you guys, the first thing I was asked to do is is to bring coffee to a Bible study. And I thought that was the greatest thing. I thought, wow, you know, this is something that I'm being asked to do to bring to a gathering of God's people. I thought, absolutely. My wife and I, we, we, we bought a, Big percolator, and you know, I would buy the coffee and bring it prepared because it takes a long time to put coffee through a percolator. And I thought was the greatest thing. And and from that point, and I can tell you, just I we have never looked back from that point, have we? From that point, this way, we have we have never looked back, and everything that was before us, we just wanted to serve the Lord and, and bless Him and serve God's people. So, the smallest of denials or the smallest of inconveniences should not deter us from serving the Lord and giving Him everything. Again, I would like to think that refuge is the exception to this. But we will only build on that exception if it is true, if we humble ourselves and know that it can change At any moment. And so we need to be mindful of ourselves. Please consider yourselves and ask if perhaps you are guilty of this. May God's spirit reveal this to you. That you may confess and repent and desire to be pleasing to him. Because we have the example of the priests and Levites that. Succumbed to the pleasures of the world. Remaining in Babylon. And if they can succumb to the temptation to do this. Then we know that anyone else can. So, as we continue on, two special groups returned with the Israelites, as we we read. They were the temple servants and then the sons of Solomon's servants. One group is is believed to be referring to the Gibeonites who were made servants of the Levites and priests uh, when they deceived Israel, and Israel was deceived into making a covenant with them. And so... Um, they couldn't do anything to them, and they brought them in, but they made them servants of, again, the priests and the Levites. The other group that, was, that we read about and uh, we referred to here is believed to be referring to foreign proselytes who were absorbed into the uh, community of Israel, uh, originating during the time of Solomon. So those are the two groups that we see there mentioned in the final portion of what we just read. Then there were those who... Could not prove um, what tribes they were from. They couldn't prove their genealogies. And that's what we're going to read right now. Verse 59 as we continue. says the following were those who came up from Tel-Malah. Tel-Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Imer. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent. Whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah of the sons of Tobiah and the sons of Nakoda, 652, also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of um, Hachas, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of uh, Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. Uh, These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. It It was a serious matter that their genealogies could not be confirmed, especially for the priests. Zerubbabel wanted to make sure that people were whom they said they were, and especially those men who served as priests. Um, Listen, just because they claimed to be Israelites doesn't mean they were. And just because they claimed to be priests doesn't mean they were. At least in Zerubbabel's mind, until they were confirmed, they had to be considered to be um, defiled or not um, who they said they were. And therefore, until they could be, it could be proven, they were excluded from the priesthood, determined to be unclean until their claim could be confirmed or determined one way or the other. Uh, as we consider uh, life today within the church, we know that men should be tested to see if they are true. And people should make sure They are genuine and not false. You know, there's a way that the Bible talks about, and we've gone through it, how it is that um, there is the the fruit of the Spirit um, that we ought to look for in our own lives. A tree will be known by its fruit, right? Not only to determine, um, you know, where other people um, stand, and that is, I'm talking, uh, for the most part, teachers and those people who are pastors and leaders, Right? But also ourselves, consider, you know, what kind of fruit we are producing or not producing, right? How much more should the leadership within the church look to test other men to make sure that they are in the right place, especially before bringing them into a place of leadership, teaching, any kind of significance within the body. Making sure that they are genuine and not false. As for pastors and deacons, we have 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and we have Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, which both of these sections serve as a test and examination of godly integrity and individual character. Are these proven to be possessed by that man that is considered for these roles? We also know in Acts chapter twenty. And this is the reason why we ought to test and we are to look to uh, the fruit of the person because we need to pay careful attention um, to this within the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, as the Apostle Paul was addressing the, the elders in Ephesus, he had this word for them. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, It says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I Did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears, and he went on from there. And so it is important. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, I send you out as sheep among wolves, so be as cunning as a serpent, but as harmless as doves. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, as Jesus spoke. So And so we're we're warned, we know of these things. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We ought to exercise the wisdom of God as we look to Him for that, that we may be discerning. Also in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Excuse me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people or his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so it is that we are to also include it in this, not only for ourselves that we are to be zealous for good works, that we ought to purify, be be pure within the church and Be drawn unto the Lord and desire to be righteous before him. Not self-righteousness. Don't get me wrong. It's not a self-righteousness. It's a desire to lead a life that is honoring to the Lord. But in doing so, what is required of us also is sometimes to exhort one another. To admonish. And sometimes even to rebuke. But that is in love. Remember that faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of the enemy. And so if you just have a bunch of people around you who just kind of um, stroke your ego and just, just uh, and never, never point out anything that perhaps um, you're a little off on, then, then you might want to be leery of those friends. A good friend will tell you when hey, you're not going in the right direction. That's not not good, right? That's a good brother. That's a good sister. That's one worth keeping. And um, because you'll both benefit from that. <clears throat> because it should be determined by the spiritual fruit produced in one's life that we genuinely belong to Jesus Christ. Remember, something not tested is not worth trusting, especially when it comes to our faith. So, as we consider Zerubbabel and um, these people who were not confirmed, uh, until these people were confirmed, they were not to be considered genuine priests and were not allowed to partake of the most holy food. And uh, until the, perhaps uh, there should be a priest uh, to consult the Urm and thummim. Now, I just want to tell you that... Uh, the, the priest uh, uh, would, would uh, have the urim and the thummim, and it is not clear as exactly what it was. It is believed that perhaps there were two colored rocks. One was white, one was black, and uh, they would ask these questions and, uh, and then reach in, pull out. If it was white, it was, it was yes, and if it was black, it was no, What would be awesome if it was one rock. And how it is that you pulled it out, and whatever it was, that's that's the answer. But um, <clears throat> we uh, we do know that uh, it wasn't uh, special glasses to read um, the hieroglyphics or anything like that. Uh, you know, as far as Joseph Smith is concerned, um, <clears throat> and all that nonsense. Uh, we know that um, that that it's not that. Uh, as I uh, as I um, considered what. Chuck Smith was talking about as we, he went through Ezra. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, false uh, teachers who go off in tangents as to trying to interpret what this is in ways in which it would draw attention to themselves and perhaps them, themselves uh, derive power from this. And so we know that not to be true. It was something that was practiced in that time with the priests and, um, and so they would, would consult the Urim and Thummim and, uh, and then determine whether in this situation, whether those Israelites that could not confirm their genealogies were genuine or not. But we'll leave it at that. Uh, it wasn't concluded, and then we go on from that. That's what Zerubbabel wanted to make sure, that they were uh, not allowed to partake in the ministering um, to the Lord until they were confirmed. Let's continue on, verse 64 it says the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. And so we have the summary of the returning exiles in total, came out to be about 50,000. Uh, but as we have learned, this is only but a fraction of the total number of exiles. Most of them that uh, who remained in Babylon, they didn't return with the first wave being led by Zerubbabel. Now, Edwin Yamauchi the expo- from the Expositors Bible Commentary said this, quote, There seems to have been no social or commercial barriers between the Jews and the Babylonians. Their prosperous situation may explain why some chose to remain in Mesopotamia. In fact, they were so comfortable with life in Babylonia that it is believed that the development of synagogues began in Mesopotamia. In other words, those who remained uh, built these synagogues to where they would go and have fellowship, and they would read the Old Testament, and they um, they would teach the word. And so this was during, of course, the time that they were in Babylon, during the the time of their exile. Now, there is a perceived contrast between the group that left and the group that stayed behind. And I say this, um, and this is from from those who were in um, uh, positions of authority, who, looking back on the exiles, those who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, and those who remain this this is how they were looked at. Walter Adeni, again the expositor's bible said this quote in the Talmud it is said that only the chaff returned while the wheat remained behind close quote. Think about that. The chaff the chaff they returned. But they say the wheat, the wheat remained behind. It's an interesting perspective. Because we know that God made it possible for his people to return and rebuild. In fact, it was according to, to his word, right? Perhaps it was not the chaff, but rather the wheat that returned and were willing to rebuild the temple. After all, obedience demonstrates a genuine love for God, doesn't it? God prefers obedience over sacrifice according to 1 Samuel 15, 22. And according to John fourteen fifteen, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God's word was, I've just made it possible for you to return to, to Jerusalem and to Judah. And then King Cyrus said, go back. All of you Israelites, you're, you're more than welcome to go back to the promised land. This is the land that God had set aside for you to occupy, to dwell in. And Jerusalem was a place where the people were given to worship God, and yet they failed to do so. In fact, the majority failed to do so. Only a small portion came back. Now we are to keep his commandments and we are to be obedient to the word of God, not out of duty, not out of ritual, but out of a heart of devotion, because it should be an expression of delight toward the one whom we profess to love. We can sing all we want, I love you, Lord, I love you, Jesus. May you be glorified, may you be honored. In the moment we say, no, Lord, we contradict all of that. But it should be out of a heart of devotion. We desire to be used by God for his glory, for his honor, in whatever way he sees fit. Well, the wheat did return. And they returned with little, but they returned with some. Right? They were given everything that they needed to go back and begin this important work of rebuilding the temple, the house of the Lord. All they needed to know is that God was with them. God have, had given them everything they needed and he will supply them with everything that is necessary to complete the work that had be begun. Verse 68 says, Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and made, made freewill offerings for the house of God, to erect it on its site, according to their ability they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest's garments. So, <clears throat> some of the heads of the house, households, not all of them, as we read here, made these freewill offerings. We need to understand freewill offerings are not required, or, or else they wouldn't be freewill free offerings, right? These were not required, but they chose to give sacrificially and willingly for the work of rebuilding, specifically for the work of rebuilding the house of the Lord. We need to understand that God loves a cheerful giver, Are you a cheerful giver? If you're a reluctant giver, stop giving. Until you get to the point of understanding who it is that you're giving to. I'm not talking about financially, although that's included, right? But of yourself, completely. If you're not giving cheerfully, then then stop. Get your heart right before the Lord. And then at that point, when you give of yourself, you understand and you will become that cheerful giver because God loves a cheerful giver and he loves a sacrificial giver and even those who give beyond their ability sometimes we say well just uh, give however it is that uh, that uh, 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 goes along with with um, your um, in proportion to whatever it is that you you want to give but There's evidence in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 2 says that God desires a disciplined and regular giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 3, we see here that God looks to a people to at times give beyond their means. And this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 3. So if you're jotting down notes, jot these down. This, This is of their own accord, but it was absolutely sacrificially. And 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And finally, I give you the example in Luke chapter 21, verse 2. Giving sacrificially in proportion to one's desires. You see, this, this is the example of the poor widow. How it is that she put in two small copper coins into the offering box. And it was this, this poor widow that put in those two small copper coins that was, that was turned into a, a, an object lesson for Jesus' disciples. He brought them over. And he says what she gave was more than all of the others. All of the others gave out of their abundance. But she gave everything that she had. I always point out that Jesus never told the disciples to go up to the poor widow and tell her to pull those two copper coins, small copper coins out. He used her, and even up to now, and for all eternity, for his word endures forever, will forever be memorialized as a woman who was willing to give everything and was blessed for it. It was an example worth emulating, as it pertains to giving. The sum, as we see here, gave accordingly. And it was significant in the eyes of the Lord. Significant enough to record it for all eternity. I hope that our giving is worth God's noting. Only serving to honor and to glorify Him. In conclusion, verse 70 it says, now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. As we started out, we conclude. Because this is exactly what happened as, as the Lord brought them back into Jerusalem and Judah. They all went to their respective towns. Those places that they left, they came back to and now we're dwelling in them. Israel was once again populated just as God had spoken through his prophets. And again, I remind you that God is faithful. God is good. When God's words uh, describing the last days begin to take shape, rejoice and look up. While redeeming the day because we know two things. First of all, this is that. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, right? In other words, there's a purpose in it. No matter what it is, you know, Ray prayed whether it's in good times or bad. You know, it, it really, you know, through the bad times we know that sometimes God carries us. It's necessary for us to press into him that much more, to cling to him, to be reminded of his promises, knowing that he is faithful. He's a God of all comfort. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, so He's able to give us whatever it is that we need. But more than anything, are we content just with him? After all, he is our God, he is our Lord, he is our Savior. Is that not enough? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And secondly, this, look up. If you see the days and, and the things that are happening today, look up. Your redemption draws near. And so the rapture of the church is imminent. Glory awaits us, and it, it, it could happen whether it's we're raptured or we go through the door of death because for us in Christ, death is not something to fear. It's simply a door into glory, into all eternity in the presence of our God and Savior. Amen? Father, we thank you. Lord, for your promises are yes and amen. We thank you that we are we were reminded once again this evening, Lord, that as you brought your children back from captivity, in fact, you disciplined those whom you love. And so, Lord, we know that this was this was a discipline that you applied to your people whom you love. But we're reminded of your faithfulness, Lord, of of how it is that you're able to do the impossible. And bringing the children of Israel back to their land. I thank you for the examples of those those few faithful men and women and children that came back. Lord, because those are examples worth emulating. Worth following. and Examples worth um, allowing our very own hearts to be stirred up with. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for loving us the way you do. Oh, you are patient with us. You are long-suffering. You're merciful. You are praiseworthy. You are trustworthy. And we love you. We thank you for this time in your word. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.